When Judas had gone out from the upper room, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We're coming to what is the deepest and darkest and most devastating part of the gospel. Judas has just gone out to betray Jesus. Before the night is out, he will be arrested, he will be manhandled, he will be humiliated, he will be spat upon, he will be tried. Before the next day is out, he will be scourged, humiliated in every way, and crucified. And yet Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and in him God is glorified. Where is the glory in what is unfolding? Well, he is fulfilling the Father's perfect will. The love of God is being poured out completely. The bridegroom is laying down his life for his bride. No glory and humiliation. You think by very definition, it's the opposite end of things. We think of someone being glorified, being lifted up. To be humiliated is to be crushed down. And yet now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Interesting, though, if I were to ask you to think about an incident, somebody who had done something that you were very much inspired by, what you would consider to be the most laudable of actions. I suspect that what would come to mind is not somebody who crushed his enemies, who by some wonderful feat of skill dazzled everyone, I, of course, am impressed by someone who has real skill and does things very well, even if it's somebody I don't like particularly. I'm still impressed by somebody who does whatever they do in sport, music, whatever, really well. But I suspect when I ask you to think of that most laudable of actions, you don't think of that sort of thing. You think about someone who has given him or herself in very selfless fashion. You might well think of someone who has made what we call that supreme sacrifice, someone who has given his or her life for another. Because in some way, we've got a glimpse of that being where the real glory is, that the glory is not so much the light that the world shines on someone who is exalted, but real glory has to do with the light that reveals the true heart that is there reveals the things that are holy and eternal and good. Think about that even in the context of love within a marriage or the lover and his beloved together. It's a great thing to promise that you're going to do all these things for her. You're going to climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest ocean. And I imagine again and again that the true-hearted woman says, well, that's all great, but what I really want is that you're going to change diapers, that you're going to sit up all night with the sick child, that you're going to put aside some of the things that you most want to do in order to accommodate some of the things that make me feel worthwhile and give me life, that you're going to give yourself to me. You're not going to do all these things for me, but you're going to be with me. That self-giving love, that sacrificial love, is really at the heart of things. 
one of the gifts that I was given growing up with my own parents. There were times when I'd get frustrated with my dad for the sharpness of his tongue, or there would be moments where they didn't seem to be as respectful of each other as they might be, but I always knew that they loved one another. And when my father was dying in hospital, as his, his ability to interact decreased more and more, my mom was there by his side, and she did a lot of those little things, that the speaking to him, the, the wiping his brow with the, the washcloth, holding his hand. There was never any question of the love that was being conveyed. Well, that's the glorious love. That's where the glory is shown, not in the great feats that are done, which is not to say you can't do some of those great things. And um, just in case any wives who are present are thinking now I've talked their husbands out of giving them expensive gifts. or the, um, That's not quite the intention. Jesus at that supper, as we pick up in our gospel today, in that context spoke about his new commandment. A commandment that he said, if you do this, it will be the sign for others that you are my disciples. A new commandment. I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you love one another. And there's always that question when it comes up about what's new about the commandment. Some think he's just saying, well, love one another, and that'll be the sign. Well, is that all there is to it? The law already has that directive. Rabbis understood that there were two tables of the law. The first was... Well, we heard it in the summary of the law today. The first is the love of God with all that you have, with all that you are. But the second one is loving your neighbor as yourself. And who is more a neighbor to an apostle than his fellow apostle? I know that sometimes they maybe didn't like each other as much. You know, you wonder about someone like Matthew coming in, the tax collector, and some of them who took a while to warm up to this guy who had been defrauding people all along. Do we have to love him? Well, you remember when a lawyer asked Jesus, though, well, who is my neighbor? Even in the context of that debate, Jesus kind of turned things back around and found yourself thinking about, well, it's got more to do with being a neighbor than figuring out whom I have to love or whom I can get away without loving. But in all of that, surely loving your fellow disciple has to be part of that, especially your fellow apostles. What's new about the commandment? Well, it had been love your neighbor as yourself. I said I had a professor years ago who who brushed that off saying, well, of course, I mean, everybody loves himself. Now, if I were to say to you that Michael loves himself, What would you think I meant? You wouldn't think that this guy has a healthy sense of who he is. You would think he's kind of puffed up in his self-importance. Now I'm embarrassing him, but stick with him. I could have picked out somebody else. I'll get you next time. (laughs) There's a healthy self-love where you respect yourself, but there's a self-centeredness that is surely not what the commandment sets as a standard. A lot of us, though, have real trouble loving ourselves. You know, how many of us 
looking in the mirror sometimes and we're smacking our heads and saying, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you so stupid? Why did you do whatever? Um, If you don't feel that way, I'm thrilled. (laughs) But I expect that there are a few of us here today who really know that one. The struggle with loving ourselves. But now Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. There's a new standard. There's something to pay attention to. Well, what does that look like? Well, we all know that, I hope that this comes up in the context of his washing of the disciples' feet. He gets up from the table, takes off the outer garment, takes up the basin and the towel and goes about to wash their feet. It's a menial act of service. It really confounds them. Peter isn't going to stand for it until Jesus tells him this is essential. Well, you have no part in me. But in that culture, in that time, you know, Jesus will say if a man has had his bath, uh, it's the feet that get dirty just in doing the daily things. That's what you need washed. But think about washing feet. I mean, getting down on your hands and knees in front of someone washing off the the filth that is accrued over the course of the day. My understanding is that that was considered so demeaning a task that you could not compel your servant to do it. A good host would set out a basin and towel, you know, refresh yourselves, wash your feet. But the good host wouldn't get down and wash their feet. That's an act of real subservient love. Well, You call me Lord and Master, and you're right, you're right, Jesus says. Well, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, so ought you to do for one another. You don't get down and do that unless it is an act of love. Mother Teresa on the streets of Calcutta, going and ministering, ministering to those who are dying alone, ministering that love of Christ, pouring out a love that, surely demeans her in the the eyes of all of those who are looking on. She's touching the untouchable, but she's doing it in that act of Christ, of the love that lays down its life for the beloved. We know that Jesus said that the world has its way of doing things. Those who are important in the world are the ones who tell everybody else what to do, who impose their will upon them, well, not so among you, rather that the one Let the one who is first be as the least. The one who's going to be the greatest, let him be the servant of all. But remember, he doesn't just say, this is what you need to do in order order to earn your place, but this is what I am doing. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And of course, the washing of the feet, all that he's talking about there is pointing them to the cross. And there is the most complete act of giving himself up in love for them, laying down his life. This is deeper than kneeling down to wash another's feet. This is going down into the very depths of hell. It's the act of true love. The bridegroom laying down his life for his bride. We have that in our other lesson today in the Revelation. That picture of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down as the bride prepared for her husband. 
We know that's a picture of the church. It's a picture of what he calls us to be part of. That bride is not just putting on her white robe, getting herself prepared. She is putting on the robe that her groom has prepared for her. She has been washed in the precious blood. He first has laid down his life for her. Sometimes people read Ephesians 5 where we've got that image. There's the parallel drawn between Christ's love for his church and the love of husband for wife. And the wife is to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ. When we see that, we so easily miss the fact that we can't submit to him until he's already laid down his life for us. The model is to be there with the husband. That the wife is not just to be dominated by him, but she lays down her life in response to him laying down his for her. Go back to the garden. Go back to the beginning of all things, where, of course, the devil's offer that he has is to be like God, is to take the divine initiative, to grasp things yourself, to do it your way. And, of course, it breaks with the Lord. It breaks the likeness. Christ the Son gives himself wholly to the Father's will. But even the husband and the wife, we go back to the story and we think about the woman being the one who is seduced by the serpent. She eats the fruit and her husband follows her in that. But if you go and read St. John Chrysostom commenting on that section, Chrysostom upbraids the man saying, you were supposed to be the head here. Your job was to protect your wife, was to lay down your life for her. You were supposed to be between her and the predator. You were supposed to be Christ-like. I'm putting some words in Chrysostom's mouth, but (laughs) the sense of it. Instead, what you've done is you've been as the tail. You've followed. But your task was, as, as the head of this, to lay down your life for her so that she could submit to the divine will as well. You're the one who's failed first. The true bridegroom gives himself in that self-sacrificial love for his bride. True glorification is not grasping attention for oneself, but letting go to God who lifts us up whose light exposes the reality of the true heart, the heart of perfect integrity. So Philippians 2, the hymn that presents the one who is in the very form of God, who begins with that perfect likeness in every respect, but who empties himself, apparently empties himself of the glory, and yet it's in that emptying that he is most fully glorified in the Father. You might recall those words from Isaiah 53. Come back to them again and again. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was laying down his life 
He was giving himself in that sacrificial love. And in the eyes of the world, it's not a pretty thing. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. goes on to say it was the Lord's will. He was fulfilling that perfect will. Later he'll speak of himself as the good shepherd, who unlike the hired man who runs in the face of danger, he lays down his life for the sheep. The true love doesn't look at self, doesn't look at what's in it for me, but beholds the beloved and sees the need, pours out himself for his beloved. It's the example that we are to follow. First, Jesus is saying within the body, we need to love the body of Christ. We need to love the church. Not always an easy thing. But it begins there, and strangely, if you think about it, isn't that that earlier commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, we're members one of another within the church. This is the body of Christ. If we're not healthy in that self-love, how do we love others in like fashion? But you know, I've come back again and again to the other aspect of all of this that if we would really enter into that love of Christ, it's not just that we're following an example of something that he did long ago. It's not just a past tense, even though we read those words, love one another as I have loved you. And we think, as I did long ago. Well, one of the things we always remember when we come to the altar at the Mass is that we're not just doing a memorial of something that happened long ago, but it's a living memorial. We come again to Calvary. The sacrifice that is offered by the priest on the altar is not a new offering of Christ. It's a raising up of the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus. It's us being gathered up in him. And some of the mystery even that as we are the body of Christ, We are gathered up in him in his offering of himself. But further, he pours out himself in love. We're not only to love as he loved us long ago, but as he loves us now. Continue to say, if you're not being filled up with his love, if you're not letting him refresh and minister to you, you cannot pour out that love on others. If you're not receiving the sacrificial love of Christ, giving himself for you, there's no way you can give yourself completely for others. Or it's an expended sacrifice and you have no more. But as we receive him, and in this Eucharist, again, think about it. You know, the washing with his blood, that's revelation. It's those who's... Robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb who are made dazzlingly white. The cleansing of sin, the renewing of us, making us his holy bride. Not just covering over our unrighteousness with a, an appearance of glory, but, but 
clothing us in his glory, which is a light that shows a true heart that is made new in him. But he also, he gives himself to us, which is the other mystery of the matrimonial, the nuptial love. That husband and wife are not just two autonomous individuals who are joined by a legal arrangement. The biblical language of marriage that is there from the beginning and it's in our marriage rights is properly that the husband and wife who were two cease to be two and become one flesh. They give themselves to one another and there's a new creature, a new creation that is there in Christ. There's a family. We all come out of those. We, Some of us out of broken homes, we know the the agonies that go with that. But properly, we have those two parents. We're, the, we're fruit of that one flesh. The divine love is deeper and richer because that's an icon of the perfect love. He not only loves us, but he calls us into that love. He not only opened the way for us, but he is the way. He not only gives us a food, but he is that living bread to wash us, to cleanse us, to fill us up, that we might in fact fulfill this commandment, that we might love as he loves us. And wonderfully, when we do that, then he is glorified. Even when nobody knows what we're doing, because we give ourselves in the selfless acts and the small acts and sometimes the really uh, demeaning ones because we do something that nobody fully appreciates, but we do it out of love for him and we do it as an offering of his love. But as people catch a glimpse, it's a glimpse of Christ present. Then all men will know that you are my disciples. I've presented the image before of Jesus as the bridegroom who pledges his troth to us, who confronted with the question, will you take this bride to be your wedded wife? That the true bridegroom says, I will. And he stretches forth his arms to embrace us and seals the covenant with his blood. And in this is glory, his and ours. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified.